is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman, KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the, well, just plain interesting. And where do you hear about the fish that drives? K- I'm serious. <laughs> KNX In-Depth. We dig deep and ask the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know on the menu. For today's show, millions of parents all over the country, they are noticing their bank accounts are missing something. Money. For the first time since July, parents are no longer receiving a monthly check from the IRS in the form of a child tax credit. We'll go in depth with a parent to explain how this will impact her family and many others. The IRS hates when you're behind on taxes. But now it's the one who's behind. Millions of tax returns from last year still have not been processed. We'll explain what this means for you this year. And retail sales were down in December, but that doesn't necessarily mean the economy is in bad shape. Russian leader Vladimir Putin might be planning a cunning and deceptive plots to invade Ukraine. We'll tell you about it. We'll look at the first year of the Biden presidency and what the president has accomplished and what he hasn't. The Oath Keepers leader found out encrypted messages. Well, they aren't so secret. And then, yes, we will have the fish that can drive. Yes, people probably thought we were kidding. No, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Fish it's just motors all around. Yes, it drives. Not on the 405. Don't worry. <laughs> But it does drive. Let's start with the uh, end of the child tax credit. With us is Natasha Chavez. She lives in Phoenix, is the mother of two. Her $500 monthly child tax credit check ended in December. December. Natasha, thanks for being with us. So what sort of hardship has this presented to you and your family? Well, um, in between um, the last paycheck and our... I guess the last child tax credit and January 15th, where we were supposed to have one, I um, lost my job. So this one on the 15th would have definitely made an impact. It would have been a nice um, kind of Band-Aid had it had we had it today. Um, but unfortunately, we don't. So, yeah, it definitely means um, tightening up of the budget. What were you using it for? Um, you know, it's supposed to be geared towards something for the kids. So a lot of people, it's, it's you know, bills or food or, or back to school supplies, all that kind of stuff. Was I mean, it the same for you? Yeah, it was definitely all of that. Um, in July, when we first got it, I used um, used it to get new glasses and a new eye exam for my son. Um, and um, obviously, also, it went to new school clothes and school supplies in July and then as as the months progressed, um, yeah, the the money helped for bills and and food. It was an addition, just a nice extra addition. And you know, we we know that, like you said, the child tax credit is supposed to be about kids. So every once in a while, every couple, or I would say every once in a while, we would do something nice for the kids. Um, because we would tell them, hey, it's, you know, we'd kind of tell them that it's your money. You're getting we're getting this money because of you guys. So, you know, if that meant like, I don't know, whatever they wanted, if it was um, to go eat somewhere or to get a new video game or something, but every once in a while, we'd all also use part of that money for something fun as well. So what happens going forward? How are you able to adjust? Are you able to adjust? Um, 
like I said, this month would have definitely been nice to have that. Um, I think down the road, you find a way to balance and adjust. However, that means if, if that means cutting back on um, outings at dinner or pushing back certain um pushing back certain things that you might have wanted to do right away, medical things, maybe push those back. Um, so, uh, you know, all Americans, American families, we're all resilient people. Um, so we'll find a way to adjust, but will we fill that pinch in the, these first couple of months? Yeah, I think we'll notice it in our budget this month, next month. And, and you know, and then eventually you realize you budget within with what you have. So eventually you make do. All right. Natasha Chavez uh, lives out in Phoenix, mother of two. Uh, Natasha, thanks for uh, for talking to us. She had that $500 monthly child tax credit. Um, the checks ended uh, last month and uh, they're fighting it over in Washington. But, you know, everyone's got different ideas. So. Yeah, well, the president was hoping it would go on for quite some time, but it yeah, didn't work out that way. Still to come, Russia might be planning a false flag operation so it can invade Ukraine. And then on the complete opposite of the spectrum, we'll talk about the <laughs> driving fish and explain how the fish drives. Yes, it uh, a little it, goldfish and it, it drives right down the, the street. Right. Goes. Well, not the street. Well, they put one on the sidewalk for the video. Yeah. Yeah. OK. But, but usually they keep it indoors. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> it's a menace on the roads. <laughs> right now, though, the, the IRS is facing a massive backlog. It has more than 11 million unprocessed tax returns left over from last year. It's blaming the pandemic. So if the IRS is so far behind from last year, what does that mean for us this year? Will McBride is vice president for federal tax and economic policy at the Tax Foundation. Will, thanks for being with us. So why do I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to be waiting for their refunds and waiting and waiting and waiting? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, well, that has been the pattern in recent years, and and it's been a uh, a pattern that's gotten worse and worse generally each year. And this past year is truly exceptional. It's kind of a uh, hockey stick effect, if you will. Uh, and the, uh, the the number of policies that were introduced last year on it uh, that are very novel and, and very difficult for the for the IRS to administer um, and that were introduced just last year are, uh, like I said, uh, pretty unprecedented. And uh, we haven't seen this kind of uh, extra complexity and administrative burden laid on the IRS uh, really ever. So it, um, the expectation is that it will, it will get considerably worse this year in terms of delays, uh, in terms of uh, confusion by taxpayers, and um, the administrative uh, sort of chaos at the IRS. So for filers, do I just try to get my stuff in ASAP in hopes of getting it you know relatively on time or does the irs even just keep pushing back tax day because everyone's going to be so overwhelmed or maybe both uh well it's certainly a good idea to to get first uh, you know to try to be first in line um and the uh, suggestion by the uh, uh the national taxpayer advocate uh which is a uh, uh government body that looks at the irs and the issues and they document every year the the major uh, problems with the irs uh, with each tax filing season, they're recommending um, that uh, people avoid paper uh, tax returns, um, and that, that causes a lot of problems with the IRS because, of course, they're having to deal with those manually. Um, 
and those those appear to be the majority of those uh, returns that are um, in the in the uh, backlog. Those are the the paper returns. Uh, so filing electronically is uh, it gives you a better chance of getting that getting that uh, refund processed in a timely manner. So I know that a lot of people like getting and they look forward to getting a refund, although what that really means is you've given the government a, a sort of tax uh, or interest-free loan for about a year or so. So my question is, is there a period of time after which if you file on time and the government owes you that refund, but they take a long time because they're so delayed, do they owe you interest? Uh, yes, that's correct. So it goes both ways. Uh, that, that is part of the law. It will pay interest on a on a delayed refund. Will McBride, Vice President, Federal Tax and Economic Policy, the Tax Foundation. Coming up, we'll look into the uh, first year of the Biden presidency, what the president got done, what he didn't, and what's next for him. And that driver next to you at the red light might be a fish. Okay, not really, but fish can apparently drive. We'll tell you how. That is even possible. People across the country cut back on their spending last month. Retail sales fell nearly 2% compared to November last month. Also, when the Omicron surge started around here with us is Bob Fibbs, the retail doc, back with us on the show. Uh, Doctor, tell us what you think of this uh, latest report here. Okay, well, I don't uh, follow it like that. You should be looking at it on a unadjusted basis. And you will find out that December's retail sales actually reflected a 16% growth from 2020 to 2020 and 21% over 2019. You know, there's all sorts of ways to slice it. The reality is NRF just came out saying we came out of a once in a generation, amazing holiday boom. So I'm here to tell you, it's not all doom and gloom, my friends. Okay, so then why all the headlines that we've been reading about for the past day or so saying that, well, you know, sales are better maybe than last year, but they weren't so hot in the past month or two? Uh, If I had the answer to that, my friend, uh, I don't know that the news media would be around. Let's face it. (laughs) Every year it comes January, retail always gets kicked as coal for Christmas again. And, you know, don't get me wrong, e-commerce went down probably about 8%. That probably was due to uh, supply chain and some of those kind of things. But we are looking at, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, and again, on the unadjusted basis, which is the way I always look at it, that we've come through a pretty strong year-over-year gain. So I think that's the bigger story that um, is getting missed in all of this because, yes, of course, in the last week, you know, we all freaked out. I had COVID last uh, couple weeks ago, and yeah, it, it sucked. But at the end of the day, this is a temporary blip. We are still expecting this to be an amazing year for retail. Is that at all surprising, given how prices are up and we still have these uh, supply issues? People, though, they have money to spend, and the appetite uh, hasn't seemed to gone away too much. People still want to buy stuff. There's plenty to well, buy if you can find it. Yeah, and we have and we have savings we still haven't tapped into yet. Um, you know, let's face it: people go out, they're hopeful. People when they shop, they're hopeful, and um, people want to see something for what they've endured the last two and a half years. So I still expect we're going to see um, some amazing numbers. We saw clothing and uh, uh, clothing accessories were up like thirty three percent over last year. That's not out of 
a knee jerk. That's out of people finding that they want to go out and shop. So buried in those numbers, which of course made headlines, I think there's a lot of hope for everybody. And that's good for employment as well, as we're all trying to figure out how to attract people who want to actually work, right? Well, but as more and more people go to buy these these uh, products, these goods, isn't that only going to drive up the inflation even more? Uh, well, we do live in a supply chain uh, economy. If I've got the goods, I'm going to charge more for it. And if I don't have the goods, you could put them on sale. But um, people, you know, that's part of the reason with e-com. Unless you have transparency of how many are in stock, which is what the big boys were able to do. Let's, let's make... Uh, no bones about it. Amazon, Walmart, and Target will let you know exactly how many are in stock. And uh, that's why uh, the big have gotten bigger also in the uh, pandemic. Well, those guys were like loading up their own cargo ships, right? Just to get stuff over here. Yeah, the victor comes with spoils. They didn't have to close down, you know. Did they see uh, that grocery was going to be the key that would keep them open? I don't know. But Bill Gates wrote that over 10 years ago that this, you know, some kind of a worldwide health event would happen. And uh, I think smart minds put it together and figured out, hey, that's going to be our ticket. So, um, yeah. If the, Fed, if the Fed goes ahead, as it says it is going to, um, perhaps several times in this year to raise interest rates, is that going to have a major impact, do you think, on consumer spending? I think it's going to start in April when people realize that those uh, child tax credits actually bumped their income. That's going to be the first jolt. And then I think we're expecting, at least from what I'm hearing, that by June we should start to see the economy start to get uh, back on track, you know, to more normal. But to your point, look, China is still locked down in three of its biggest manufacturing areas. If if that falters again, uh, you know, we are – I think on the one side, we will still see these supply chain uh, shortages through most of this year – but it also could be the harbinger of people coming back to domestic manufacturing. Wouldn't that be great? Bob Fibbs, he is the retail doc. Thanks. This is KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and more interesting stories affecting all of our lives with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Tensions have been heating up between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. Now multiple reports citing U.S. intelligence sources say Russian leader Vladimir Putin might be plotting a false flag operation as a justification to invade Ukraine. Now one official said the U.S. has evidence operatives trained in urban warfare and in using explosives might carry out acts of sabotage against Russia's own proxy forces. Nina Jankowicz is a global fellow with the Wilson Center, author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Thanks for being with us. So a um, fake flag, a false flag operation, it, it sounds incredibly devious. Briefly explain how that works. Sure. The idea there is that Russia would stage an operation that makes it look like either Ukraine or its Western allies are actually waging war against Russia. Now, the important thing uh, to remember here is that Russia and its proxies, which are supported both through uh, military um, e- equipment and funding by Russia, are the ones that started this conflict a long time ago, 2013 and 2014. Russia uh, had incursions into Ukraine's 
East, it annexed the Crimean Peninsula, all illegally, of course, and Russia alone has the uh, capacity to stop this conflict if it wants to, but it seems as if it wants it to escalate. Well, it also seems like they're kind of going back to the old playbook. I mean, devious kind of thinking like this is something Vladimir Putin is good at. Yes, that's absolutely true. Vladimir Putin very famously served in the KGB during the Soviet era. And during his over 20 years in office, we've seen an increase in these sorts of disinformation campaigns. And that's something that I study. And this one is study. This is a little bit more kinetic and on the ground. But we've seen this bellicose rhetoric coming from Russian officials over the past several months as they've built up over 100,000 troops on Ukraine's eastern border, talking about things like uh, I don't know, you know, um, poison attacks, poison gas attacks, saying that Ukraine was the instigator here when it's Ukraine that has had its territory, uh, you know, changed and annexed. Uh, obviously, only uh, Vladimir Putin knows what is going through Vladimir Putin's mind. <laughs> uh, and, but we've asked experts for the past few weeks this question. We'll ask you, uh, what do you think he's up to? Is this a, a huge bluff or do you think he's actually going to go ahead and find some pretext for at least uh, uh, maybe a slight, if there's such a thing, slight incursion into, say, eastern Ukraine? Well, you know, I'm a little bit worried because this morning there was a defacement of many uh, Ukrainian government websites, including their Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their e-governance platform, which provides services to many Ukrainians. And that is usually a precursor for, for Russian incursions. We saw that in the Republic of Georgia in 2008. We saw that in uh, 2014 before the annexation of Crimea. So I'm a little less optimistic today than I was earlier in the week. And certainly, you know, so these talks that we've seen U.S. officials at in Europe over the week have, have been at an impasse. Um, I think they were set up, again, to create this pretext for an invasion. And the idea here, in my opinion, is to bolster Putin's popularity at home. Whenever he has these adventures abroad, he tends to shore up his popularity at home. Now, I think Mr. Putin would be wise to remember that as Russian soldiers are coming home in body bags and as, uh, you know, the economic toll uh, both through sanctions and the cost of perpetuating such a war comes home to roost for Russians, he might lose whatever short-term support he would gain. Does it change the game at all with us? I mean, the U.S. government saying, hi, we know what you're up to, and we're going to tell everyone that you're going to do this. Well, uh, compared to what happened in 2013 and 2014, we are at least awake to the possibility that this uh, could happen. In 2014, everyone was quite taken aback, I think really until July of 2014, when the Malaysian airliner was shot down by Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine. We hoped that conflict would go away. And this is now a well-established pattern of Russian behavior, not only in Ukraine, but in countries like Georgia and Moldova, where it has perpetuated frozen conflicts in order to to keep those former satellites, former Soviet um, Union members out of Western alliances like NATO and the European Union. So Putin must obviously be calculating what the uh, U.S. and Western response would be, because we've pretty much said what we think it was going would be. Uh, does that mean that if he goes ahead with an invasion, that he's also calculated that we really can't hurt him? 
Well, I think Russia has shown that it can withstand some sanctions. Um, we've had sanctions on Russia since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea, and then those have mounted over the past several years, especially with regard to Russian election interference. Um, but what we're seeing now, I think, is, is really a, a new level of sanctions. We're seeing uh, the Senate, for instance, considering sanctions that would stop Russia's Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline in the Baltic Sea, which has been something that it's invested in for a long time. Um, and we're seeing potential sanctions floated on Putin and members of the, you know, high level uh, Russian officials, um, which we haven't we haven't done yet. We've we've sanctioned Russian assets. We've sanctioned Russian banks. But uh, actually sanctioning these individuals themselves is a new level and might strike fear in their hearts. But at this point, it seems a little bit unlikely that he would back down uh, from this buildup anytime soon. So I think at least we'll be seeing stasis, um, if not escalation over the next few weeks. Nina Jenkowitz, Global Fellow, Wilson Center, author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. President Biden took over at the White House close to a year ago with high expectations. The president promising to do a lot in terms of controlling COVID, getting the economy back on track, investing in infrastructure, passing voting rights legislation, and maybe the most important, uniting Congress to break those frustrating log jams. Well, so far, some wins for the president, but a lot of defeats and many of those um, recently. With us here to break down the Biden presidency so far, Stephen Farnsworth, professor of political science at the University of Mary in Washington in uh, Virginia. He focuses on the mass media and the uh, presidency. Stephen, thanks for being with us. So even if you take like the last, I don't know, 48 hours, it has been pretty rough for Mr. Biden. Well, absolutely. Remember, Joe Biden became president during a very difficult time. You have the uh, the huge economic and health care crisis of COVID. You have incredibly divided partisan politics in Congress and in the country. Um, and so you're looking at somebody who's starting off in a very difficult spot. Is the problem, though, if there is a problem, that he overpromised? Uh, you know, there's that old axiom that the best thing to do uh, is underpromise and then overdeliver. Did he overpromise so that now it looks like he's really underdelivering? Well, I think the reality is that running for president requires overpromising. If you can't describe yourself as really a transformational figure when you're running for office, you're probably not going to win. And so I think that, you know, what Joe Biden did during the campaign uh, is what other presidential candidates have done during the campaign. Be very, very optimistic about what you can accomplish. Uh, running for office requires poetry, uh, whereas being in office requires chess skills. And uh, and that's a, uh, a way in which pretty much every president doesn't live up to his own promotional efforts yeah, on but, the front but, end. But isn't that what, in the end, drives uh, people to be disillusioned with politics and politicians, that they get promised things? They believe the promises, maybe not all of them. Exactly. (laughs) You know, uh, and maybe they shouldn't believe the promises, but but they do. And then, lo and behold, a year later, two years later, whatever, they kind of do a mental check and say, well, you know, we didn't get this. We didn't get that. And and then they come to the conclusion that politics doesn't ever work. And that's wrong, too. Well, I think you're exactly right. When you think about uh, being a president and all the obstacles that are out there in front of it, uh, when you're thinking about even when you have a majority in your own party in Congress, uh, 
running things there, you don't necessarily still have a Congress that's willing to do what you want. Remember when Donald Trump was running for president, he talked about uh, abolishing the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, but even with Republican majorities, he couldn't do that. And right now we're seeing a very parallel situation in my mind when you're thinking about the difficulties in, that Biden is facing in terms of trying to get Joe Manchin and uh, and some other reluctant Democrats to go along with uh, you know, some of the economic packages and the voting rights packages that are out there. I think that we all estimate uh, that presidents can do a lot more than they actually can. And that's why we're often disappointed. Uh, and, but, you know, every four years, Americans go through this cycle again. They think that the next president's going to be able to do things that the Constitution really doesn't permit them to do. And they're going to be disappointed when they find the limitations apply to this president as they applied to the first 40 some. You mentioned Joe Manchin and, and then Kirsten Cinema. Was there a problem, though, here reading the room and realizing that, OK, they're not going to go with all this stuff because it just felt like everybody was going to plow forward. And then there was a sense that, yeah, we'll get them on board. It'll be fine. When in actuality, if you would step back, you could have probably said, well, some of this is going to have to be scaled down because these two are never going to go for it. Well, I really do think that that's that that's the best way that the uh, that this administration could have moved forward. Basically, let Manchin write a bill that he's willing to sign, and then you'll have the other 49 Democratic senators do the same. It seems to me that the reality is that if the Democratic left wants more uh, progressive legislation than you can get in a 50-50 Senate, then there needs to be more than 50 Democratic senators. Joe Manchin is the pivotal senator only because there are only 50 Democrats. If there were 51 or 52, we wouldn't be thinking much about what Joe Manchin had to say at all. Okay, so you're a professor. Let's give a grade on a very singular metric here. Uh, President ran uh, in large part on the notion that he was the experienced one. He was the one who knew how Washington worked. He was the one who could bring everything together, get those rusty wheels of government actually moving. How would you grade him thus far, coming up to a year now? Well, you know, there have been some victories, right? If you think about the big infrastructure bill getting through, if you think about uh, the president, president's appointment, if you think about, you know, keeping the promise of getting out of Afghanistan, it was chaotic, but it, the promise was kept in a way that Trump's promise to get out of Afghanistan never materialized. So, uh, yeah, I mean, those sorts of positives are out there. The uh, economy is, is generally working well. There are some issues with respect to inflation, but we're not talking about and supply chain, but you're also talking about really low unemployment. I mean, it's a mixed bag. I, I really think incomplete's the only way to do things because ultimately presidents govern in two-year cycles. Uh, and I'm not convinced that there isn't some deal to be made that with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema that, uh, that Biden can call a win before the end of this year. They obviously read the polling and they're trying to get it out there again that, you know, hey, we have done things because even the press conference today, the appearance today was all about the infrastructure bill, which now has been weeks. But it was kind of like, hey, everybody, remember this? We did this and we're going to build these bridges and you should you should all be happy about that. Don't forget. Yeah, it's a it's a short attention span country. And that's always bad news for politicians because you don't have a lot of victories over two years or four years. And so when you do have one, you don't want people to forget about it right away. Uh, similarly, you saw when Donald Trump was president, he was talking about his tax cut bill. Uh, that happened once early on, but it was something that he talked about throughout his uh, his presidency because there weren't a lot of other things to draw your attention to. It's a tough job being president, and I think that 
the um, the coverage of the president, especially the focus on the president. Voters sometimes are given the impression that there just isn't that much of a say for Congress in this process. But really, Congress is is driving the train. Pretty much all everything legislatively has to go through them. That's Stephen Farnsworth, professor of political science, University of Mary Washington in Virginia, focuses on mass media and the presidency. Professor, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and more interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So encrypted messaging platforms like Signal were supposed to be the solution for keeping your text exchanges truly private. Turns out that uh, federal prosecutors used Signal messages to charge the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, with seditious conspiracy. So is it really possible to hide your digital footprint? Mallory uh, Nodal is the uh, chief technology officer of the Center for Democracy and Technology. So uh, are people being naive if they think that there really is such a thing as a totally secure communication digitally? Hi, um, thanks for having me. I think it's reasonable to assume that if an app is telling you that it has strong end-to-end encryption and is publishing documents um, about that scheme like Signal does, then it's trustworthy. Um, But I think, though, we have to understand where maybe the messages come from and what data can be get got by the by the authorities, which is not nothing. And that's an important distinction. We want to be careful that users understand that. So what do we think they can get their hands on? Because they're not saying how they got their hands on this. But I guess the first route can be just go to whoever got the messages from the other person and say, show us those. And they say, here, I've got them. But past that, the easy route, what else do we think they can do? Exactly right. Um, And that's often what happens is they get their hand on the device and they can see the messages. Um, The other way is, of course, then um, if you're in a group chat and a lot of these protests were organized in group chats, you might accidentally be adding an FBI agent to your group chat. Um, And if you do that, then the FBI is going to have a copy of all the messages you send to that chat. So it is a good sort of operating rule here that if there's something that you really, really don't want people to know about, maybe you shouldn't put it in a message? Well, that's, of course, very true. It's very it's hard to imagine, especially now in the pandemic, that we can have all of the conversations, all of the private conversations we need to have with our loved ones, our doctors, our like close advisors, our our colleagues um, completely in person. Um, we do have to use the Internet, and that's why strong encryption is so critical right now. Reasons for this for, for people who you know don't use Signal on the good side, like not nefarious, uh, those are what? I see journalists sometimes saying, you know, message me on Signal with your tips because it's protected that way. There are obviously good uses for, for having your things covered up. I would say so. I mean, if you want to maybe share um, sensitive financial information, um, a lot of us operate in households where we might have to pass back and forth. Hey, what's your social security number again? I forgot it. I'm trying to fill out this form for you. Um, there's a lot of things that we want to have private just because they're in the realm of privacy. We're talking to our friends and our loved ones about our deepest fears. And maybe we're, we're talking about a, our boss or trying to vet the end of the day. We shouldn't expect that anything and everything we say could ultimately be found by someone else online. We need to create 
some kind of mechanism to whisper amongst ourselves on the internet and encryption does that. Is there a way for the average person to sort of independently confirm or verify that what they think is an encrypted message to somebody on an app that promises that is actually that? I think that's difficult. There certainly um, should be trust placed in um, apps that have said they've been audited, that publish a lot of details about their technical inner workings, even if a person couldn't understand that, but that they exist is a good indication. But then there are groups like the Center for Democracy and Technology or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the um, American Civil Liberties Union that all have endorsed various apps. And you can trust those intermediaries to have people like me on staff who are technical, who can look into those technical documents, verify that they're accurate, and then endorse them. Mallory Nodal, Chief Technology Officer of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Well, as Angelie knows, we have all seen our fair share of boneheaded drivers on the road. I saw a few this morning. And we thought, it's just driving. How hard can it be? I mean, anyone, anyone can do it. Yes, or anything. Researchers at Ben-Gurion University in Israel proving just that. New study, they taught six goldfish to drive a robotic car. And they drive it on land. It's, you know, not in the ocean. Shahar <laughs> Givon is a Ph.D. candidate at the university's life sciences department's lead author of the study. Okay, so, so uh, you got to tell us, how, what does this thing look like, this vehicle, describe it, that the fish is driving? Uh, no problem. So in our lab, we study fish navigation, and we wanted to challenge the fish to... Uh, to do a navigational task on land. In order to do that, we had to help them uh, move around uh, on land. So we built a fish-operated vehicle. It's a water tank mounted on a platform with a video camera uh, on top uh, that records the fish movement in the tank, uh, passes on the information to a computer that uh, directs the vehicle where to go uh, in accordance with the, fish, uh, with the fish's movements. So the the fish is sort of driving this vehicle. Yeah, of course, uh, it is the only one in control. Has has there been much demand for fish wanting to learn to drive? <laughs> well, well, you'll be surprised. I mean, I don't know uh, what it's like driving in LA. I heard there's a lot of traffic. So imagine <laughs> giving the wheels to a fish and having it uh, be alert for the whole while. <laughs> no, seriously, we're just, uh, we're having fun. We're thinking of a new challenge and then we're thinking uh, of ways to achieve it. And um, yeah, and if it brings attention and uh, people have uh, fun and enjoy watching uh, this and watching science being made, yeah, great. How did the fish learn to drive? Like, how did you teach it? So actually, yeah, uh, driving is pretty easy to learn, I guess. Uh Imagine yourself sitting in a car and playing around with the wheel. Uh, you'll realize turning the wheel right will make the car go right and left will make the car go left. So the fish slowly understood there's a correlation between its movements and the vehicle it's in, uh, which was easy. But uh, teaching it uh, to perform the task, now that's reinforcement learning in its simplest form. Once it does something uh, well, it gets food, which always gets me going. So <laughs> now, now here in, in here in L.A., uh, many drivers just cannot parallel park. Can the fish 
parallel park? Uh, it can reverse park. Uh, oh, it's one thing you showed in the video. It yeah. does reverse. So it's a step in the right direction. <laughs> so, so can any fish learn to drive? You know what? Uh, I'm not going to speak to any fish because I know some people who should not have a driver's license. <laughs> but so the uh, same goes for some yeah, fish. Yeah, I think in a general level, yeah, most fish can uh, learn to accomplish. Yeah, this is a slippery slope. A shark gets a car and it starts coming after us. Um, <laughs> I, I thought fish, and this is a goldfish, right? I, I, you know, we were always told that the little fish brain was like not up to any task, really, other than just doing <laughs> circles. Like, is this surprising or are fish smarter than we think they are? Uh, they are definitely smarter than we think we they are. Uh, they're not as primitive as uh, a lot of people believe. Remember, they had millions of years of evolution to reach where they're at, just like we did. It's just in different environments, right? Uh, so they do uh, remember a lot more uh, than people think. Maybe if the fish that you remember from home did not remember you, keep in mind that maybe, you know, your fish died from time to time and your parents replaced them without you knowing and didn't <laughs> recognize you. So... Uh, no, but fish it was all a scam. Months-long memories. The science part, and and we'll get back oh. to fish driver's license in a minute. Um, does it know where it is in space, or is it just like it remembers it's supposed to go left, and then it gets fish food, or like does it understand that outside of its tank is like our world? <laughs> Yeah, I love that question because it's exactly one of the things that we checked. If it only remembers to go left or if it actually looks around and uh, decides where to go based on where it's at. Uh, and we did test it out by having it like start in different locations and uh, and maybe change the location of the target around and see if, if it can still reach it. So it there is definitely a thinking process to it and not just an automatic let's go left. Have you caught any fish speeding? <laughs> uh, Nick it in the butt because they made all the water splash around, which is not good. <laughs> so, so yeah, you don't want the water to splash out of the tank when you're hightailing it through. <laughs> so uh, what in in, in in I guess in conclusion, what did you end up learning seriously? from mm -hmm. this this experiment or this exercise in teaching fish to drive? Okay. Uh, well, what we wanted to check is whether the ability to navigate is something universal or is it like a species dependent? Like, uh, is the ability something only some species can do and only in their environment? Or if you can do it in the, in the water, you can do it on land, you can do it in the air. Uh, which will basically mean that the way we navigate and strategize uh, might be not so different uh, between us, fish, and let's say rodents. Uh, so we wanted to check that out by uh, introducing the fish to a new environment that it's never been to and it's so unnatural to it. Uh, and we feel that we did do it. It's, uh, of course, only one step in uh, really proving it. Uh, there are more tests that we want to do and continue with this uh, study forward. C can you tell if the fish are enjoying the driving experience? <laughs> uh, well, they do seem very energetic inside the tank. I mean, you can you can see when an animal is not happy. Um, they won't eat, they won't move a lot. But our fish, they loved the food, they're energetic, they swim a lot. So, 
So that's a really good indication that they're having fun. Because they haven't experienced traffic jams. Yet. Right. That's why. There's not too many fish <laughs> on the road. Yeah. Exactly. Just yeah. wait. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I give a quick shout out? Of course. Yeah. So uh, Colbert did uh, kind of a parody about it in their late night show. And we, we loved it. So Colbert, if you hear this, uh, thanks for the parody. It was amazing. <laughs> We're laughing so much. Great. <laughs> All right, that's uh, Shahar Givon, PhD candidates out there at Ben Gurion in uh, in Israel with the driving fish. Driving. So, so Tom Tran, let me ask you something. Do we have to now rethink our traffic reports? Because I mean, fish... I rethink my traffic reports every time <laughs> I go on the air. No, but I mean, but, with, uh, if fish are going to drive, I mean, you know. Listen, we already have Batmobiles. Uh, Spider-Man has the very little-known Spider-Mobile, so Fishmobile <laughs> no, not really out of no. the realm of possibility, yeah. is it? No. But if you see a fish put on driving gloves and a scarf, I'd get off the 405. Ready for action. All right, Tom, thanks. Uh, That's In Depth for the week. We'll be back uh, next week.